I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And um, in, a, in a few moments, I'll read verses 32 to 52. I, I love this passage. <laughs> it's so beautiful. I want to I begin with an application of the text that I haven't read yet, um, but I want to put it out there at the beginning so that it's on your mind. There's obviously dozens and dozens of applications of a passage like this, all important, and I just, just want to call your attention to one at the beginning of the message. You know, the, the last 14 months has been trying and difficult in many ways, and yet I have to confess that the Lord has done wonderful things through it. The Lord has done wonderful things. I see in, in my own life, in my own family, and in, in other people's lives, and in the church as a whole, a lot, of, a lot of renewal, a lot of deepening of fellowship, a lot more regular loving connections among us as the body of Christ. And, uh, we, we, and we need to remember what, what, what it's for as the Lord is renewing our fellowship and our ministry and as more opportunities open up before us that we have a calling. The calling is to declare the praises of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to, and to make new disciples. We, we want to be salty, salt, the salt of the earth, bright shining light, calling people, lift, lifting up the, the gospel and calling people to come and join us in following our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, there is something, there's actually, there's actually several things, but in terms of this particular passage this morning, there's something that can derail our participation in Jesus' mission. And we, 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 we can't derail Jesus' mission, praise God. His mission will succeed. His, his purposes will be accomplished. But we can derail our participation in it. And the thing that's on my mind that can derail our participation is selfish ambition. Someone gets to thinking that it's all about me. It's all about my ideas. It's all about my plan. It's all about my glory. The Apostle John war uh, called attention to a man named Diotrephes in his third letter. He said Diotrephes loves to be first. He, he was a leader in the church. He loved to be First, he broke fellowship with God's people and he kicked people out of the church. Selfish ambition derails mega churches and small churches, big ministries and little ministries get derailed because someone has to be first. And so, with that in mind, I want to read verses 32 to 52. This is the Word of God. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, 
and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, as we are addressed by you through this passage, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to understand and to be transformed by the instruction and the example of our Lord in whose name we pray. Amen. So what I want to do, I want, I want to walk through this passage in four parts, and then after that, call your attention to three very important applications for us. So to begin with, in verses 32 to 34, Jesus tells his disciples 
that he is headed to his death. They're, they're on the road, Jesus and the 12 apostles and a, a larger group of people uh, following him. It says they're going up to Jerusalem. They're, they're on their way to Jerusalem, and as you notice in verse 46, they were in Jericho, Jericho, several hundred feet below sea level, <laughs> and, uh, and, and Jerusalem, not too far away, a couple thousand feet above sea level, they were going up to Jerusalem. And those who were following Jesus were amazed and overwhelmed and afraid. We're not told exactly why they were amazed and afraid, but perhaps the things that Jesus has been teaching them have been unsettling them, and, and also there's, there's this mysterious thing that Jesus has been talking about in terms of his, his death in Jerusalem, which they really don't understand, but for some reasons they're overwhelmed. And then, and then Jesus takes the twelve, as he's been doing at various points earlier in the Gospel of Mark, he takes the twelve apostles aside in order to remind them a third time, right? He, he, he told them this in chapter 8, verse 31, in chapter 9, verse 31, and now again here that he is going to be delivered over to the Jewish religious leaders. He's going to be delivered over on, on, a, on a human level by the betrayer Judas, but on a much deeper level, he's going to be delivered over by God the Father as the plan of redemption is brought to fruition. And the Jewish religious leaders will stand in judgment over their Messiah and decide that he is worthy of death. But since they don't have the authority to kill him, they will hand him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, to Pontius Pilate. And under the watch of Pontius Pilate, he will be mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed. Behold your king, dead in Jerusalem. But that's not the end. After, after three days, he will rise. Through, through, through this suffering and through this death, he is bringing forth a great victory in resurrection. Now you would think that if the apostles really understood what Jesus was saying, they would be profoundly humbled and sobered by what Jesus is teaching them. But of course, they're blind. And so <laughs> James and John turn their attention to another matter entirely. And this brings us to verses 35 to 41 which I summarize this way, James and John are full of misguided ambition and the other disciples aren't happy about it. So James and John come up to Jesus in verse 35 and, and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, Jesus invites us to make bold requests in his name. But bold requests in his name are, 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 are not the ones that arise out of self-serving ambition. 
So Jesus says in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? And then they tell him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. James and John are thinking about worldly status, worldly power, worldly prestige and rank. If you have seen, and I'm sure many of you have, if you've seen a president of the United States delivering a, a State of the Union address. And as you're looking up to him, you'll notice that on his right, there is the vice president of the United States. And on his left is the speaker of the House of Representatives. There's a, there's a, there's a pecking order, so to speak, within our federal government. Those are three pretty high officials. Or more to the point of, of, of this particular request, if you can imagine Jesus sitting in glory in his messianic kingdom, and there's this grand banquet hall, and uh, the, the, the apostles have a, have, a, have a special place, well, James and John want to be right there, one at the right, that, that, that would be the place of highest honor aside from the central figure. On his right would be the highest honor, and then on his left would be the next highest honor. And that's where James and John want to be. And Jesus says in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. How many times do we not know what we are asking when we are asking? See, here's the, here's the, here's the thing. And we've already been learning this, right? Suffering and sacrifice and servanthood is the pathway to glory. It is the pathway to glory for Jesus and for all of his followers. And James and John don't understand this. If they really did understand it, their question would be radically different. Their question would be, like, the, 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 the request would be, Jesus, since suffering and sacrifice is the pathway to glory, and we want to be right there with you in your glory, then would you grant us to be crucified with you, one on your right and the other on your left? You see, that would show understanding. They have no idea what they are asking. They are forgetting about the fact that suffering and sacrifice is the pathway to glory. And that's what Jesus calls their attention to. That's why Jesus immediately turns to suffering. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? These are metaphors that, that speak of the, the cup of suffering and the, the, the baptism, this, this immersion into suffering. Jesus is going to be overwhelmed with the floodwaters of suffering and death. And Jesus is basically saying to James and John, are you able to share in my suffering? Are you able to share in my anguish? Are you able to share in my trials? 
And they said to him, we are able. No doubt their answer is, uh, char- is, is characterized by a shallow understanding and a bit of overconfidence in themselves. But nevertheless, Jesus says, still in verse 39, the cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. They probably don't understand what that means yet. But John, you will be imprisoned, and you will be exiled to the island of Patmos for my name's sake. James, you will be beheaded. Acts chapter 12. But, verse 40, to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. The Father has planned it all. Now is not the time to know what and how he has planned it. Entrust the matter to him and get on with following me. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, now we've been reading along here in chapters 8 and 9 and 10. It's not as if the other ten are indignant because they are jealous for the glory of Jesus. Yeah. The, 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 uh, the other ten have, have about as much selfish ambition as James and John do. And you can imagine what it would be like to be part of a team of 12 and everybody wants to be first. And then these two rascals over here dare to assert themselves and, and, and make it pretty obvious that they think they are better than everyone else. Yeah, they're not very popular. Who do they think they are? So, so Jesus has to, has to corral his his disciples and teach them yet again what true discipleship is all about. And that brings us to verses 42 to 45 where Jesus teaches his disciples a better way. Verse uh, 42, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. You, you know how how leadership and rulership and power so often works in the world, in, in government, in politics, in big business, that those, those who are considered rulers and lords and, and great ones, they're, they're in it for themselves. They are, they are pushing ahead with their agenda. They are running over anyone who gets in their way, a dog-eat-dog kind of world. They're, they're looking to enrich themselves and boost themselves at other people's expense. In fact, if you, if, in Ezekiel chapter 34, the Lord blasted the shepherds, the rulers of Israel, because they did not care for the flock of God's people. All they, all they sought to do was to enrich themselves, to eat well and be comfortable and to be exalted at the expense of 
the sheep. They did nothing to care for the weak and weary sheep. And, 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 and Jesus says, if you, can, if you can see and understand the way that rulership and greatness so often works in the world, that is a picture of what you all are not to be like. It, it is not to be this way among the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in the middle of verse 43, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Do you want to be great? Do you want to be prominent? Do you want to be significant in God's sight? In reality, not, not as the world defines it. Do you want to be great and prominent and significant in reality, the way that God sees things? Then you must be a servant. You must be a slave. You must not go into relationships and conversations and meetings and difficulties where your agenda is to get your way, where your agenda is to manipulate things the way that you want them to go, where your agenda is to be the one who saves the day and gets the credit. Instead, you're to go into all those various relationships and responsibilities lowly, humble with a desire to serve and help and bless and lift others up. And then verse 45, one of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. Jesus isn't just telling us what to do. Jesus isn't just telling us how to live. He does it. He does it. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come into the world looking for people to serve Him. Instead, He came looking for people to serve, people that He could serve people that he could lift up, people that he could help. He was building a kingdom not at the expense of others, but at his own expense. He bears the cost. And it says that he demonstrated his service by giving his life as a ransom for many. If you can think about this concept of ransom, imagine you have slaves, prisoners of war, criminals, and they're, they, ha they, have, they have no life, they have no future, they have no freedom, they are captives, they are in bondage, and they need someone to come and pay a ransom, pay a price for their redemption, for their deliverance out of their captivity, and Jesus pays this price by laying down his own life and spilling his own blood as a ransom for the captives. We'll come back to verse 45 during the application. Now, let's go on to the final section, verses 46 to 52, which I summarize this way. 
A blind beggar is a picture of humble discipleship. They're, they're in the area of Jericho, and Jesus and the twelve and a great crowd are walking along on their way. Ultimately, they're going to be heading to Jerusalem, and there's this blind beggar by the roadside who hears that Jesus of Nazareth is walking by, and he knows and understands that Jesus of Nazareth is no ordinary man. He is, he is the son of David. He's the king who has come to rescue his people, and so he cries out for mercy. And then, echoing what the disciples had done in chapter 10, verse 13, do you remember? They rebuked the folks who were bringing the little kids to Jesus. Messiah doesn't have time for y'all. Well, now another group of people decide to rebuke the blind beggar. And many rebuked him, verse 48, telling him to be silent. This blind beggar was nothing more than an annoyance to them. But the man was persistent and he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me and don't you love verse 49? Everyone else would have just walked by and ignored this guy. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. That's grace. Jesus is the kind of Savior who notices Someone that everyone else ignores, that everyone else writes off, that everyone else doesn't have time for. Jesus notices. Jesus pays attention. Jesus says, call him. And with great energy, being encouraged to come, he does indeed come to Jesus. And Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Does that question sound familiar? Right, verse thirty. Six, Jesus said to James and John, what do you want me to do for you? Well, we've got a self-serving request. They were full of themselves. The blind beggar was not full of himself. He just wanted mercy. What do you want, what do you, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Is, is, is what you want Jesus to do for you born out of being full of yourself or born out of empty hands crying out to the king for mercy? The blind man says at the end of verse 51, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is beautiful. Now there's, there's, a, there's a couple levels of meaning here. On a, on a purely physical level, the fact of the matter is, is that this blind beggar got healed. He was physically blind one moment and Jesus healed him and now he could see and now he could put one step in front of another and follow Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. That's on a physical level. 
but I think Mark intends and the Holy Spirit intends for us to see it on a deeper level. Remember, I've, I've, I've said a number of times that this section that we've been looking at from chapter 8, verse 22 to chapter 10, verse 52 begins and ends with the healing of someone who was blind. And what is the problem with the disciples all throughout these chapters? They don't understand. They only see partially. Okay? We need Jesus to restore our spiritual sight. And here's, here's the thing. The, the, the whole point of seeing, the whole point of seeing clearly, the whole point of understanding is so that you will follow Jesus on the path of discipleship. He followed him on the way. So that's an overview of our passage. Now I want to really call attention to what I think are three very important applications that flow out of this passage. Here's the first one. See. You need to see Jesus building his kingdom. And you need to see how he is building his kingdom. I, I skipped over a word in verse 33 that I want to call, call your attention to now. Jesus began what he said with the word, see. See, behold, look. He, he wants his disciples to look and understand what is going on. And they're evidently not understanding what's going on, but Jesus heals the blind. We need to see that Jesus is building his kingdom, and we need to see how he's building it. So go to verse 45. You see, three times prior to verse 45, Jesus has told us that he is going to die. That he is going to suffer. But now, for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, he tells his disciples why he's going to die. It's not just that he is going to die. It's his reason, his purpose for doing so. He is, he is giving his life as a ransom for many. So don't miss the obvious. Jesus is building his kingdom out of a bunch of people who need to be ransomed. God's kingdom is not for the cream of the crop. It's for the riffraff, the rabble. Slaves, criminals, prisoners of war. There's this beautiful passage in, in, uh, in, in 1 Samuel. I'm going to read just two verses. This is a great picture of what happened in the life of David. And so much of what happened in the life of David was an anticipation, a foreshadowing of what the son of David would do. King Jesus, the Messiah. We read... David departed from there and escaped to the cave of, uh, the cave of Adullam. 
And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And that, that, that physical reality depicts the spiritual reality. Jesus came for those in distress, for the beaten down, for the bankrupt, for those who are in bondage to sin and death, and for Jesus to drink the cup and to be baptized, immersed, overwhelmed with suffering and death was actually to drink the cup of God's judgment upon sin, the the judgment that should have fallen on us. He drank that cup. He took responsibility for our liabilities, for our sins, for our transgressions in order to satisfy the wrath of God, to satisfy the justice of God so that we could be redeemed from the power of sin and from the power of death and from the power of Satan. And once again, we see that the kingdom of God is not for the self-sufficient, like the rich man that we learned about last week who came to Jesus holding on to all his stuff and he got sent away with no blessing from the Messiah because his hands were too full of his stuff. But here, now, this blind beggar comes with nothing to offer and receives Mercy from the King. Jesus is building His kingdom through humble servanthood, through sacrifice, through suffering and death in order to bring a sinful people into fellowship with the living God. You need to see that and let that sink in. Here's the second application. The key word is receive. Receive from Jesus. What I'm about to say in the next few minutes, I think is one of the most important things I've ever said from this pulpit. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. There's a lot of people in the world, including in the church, who have the assumption that their primary way of relating to Jesus ought to be doing things for Him. That their their, their, their primary way of relating to Jesus is that we, we are called to serve Him. Jesus did not come to be served. Your primary way of relating to Jesus, if you want a real and healthy relationship with Him, your primary way of relating to Jesus must be that you are letting Him serve you. Always. Now, there's one particular way of him serving us that he highlights here. He 
gave his life as a ransom for many, but that is a, that is a window into the way in which we are always supposed to relate to him. We are sinful, and we need his righteousness. We are weak, and we need his strength. We are poor, and we need his riches. We are foolish, and we need his wisdom. We are hungry, and he is the bread of life. We are thirsty, and he is living water. And even, even th- there's, there's a legitimate sense in which we can speak of our serving the Lord. What that means is, is that He's the Master, and we're following Him. We're serving His agenda. We're serving His interests. We're following His directions. That's a legitimate way of talking about serving the Lord. But we need to understand that even in that, we are receivers. The New Testament says that if anyone serves, let him serve in the strength that God supplies. We cannot do anything of any value unless we are receiving from Jesus and receiving from the Father and receiving from the Spirit. We are always beneficiaries and never benefactors to the Lord. There may be someone in here this morning and the primary way in which you think about relating to God is you doing things for Him. It's a dead end. That was the Pharisees' problem. That was the older brother's problem in the parable of the prodigal son. The older brother actually represented the Pharisees. Look at Luke chapter 15. The older brother's like, look at everything I've done, and you've never, you've never thrown a party for me. He, he, he didn't understand that the Father loved him. He didn't understand that all that the Father had, he gladly gave. And the older son ought to have lived in the bounty of the Father's generous supply. And he turned the whole thing into a game of earning. You will never earn anything from Jesus. Nothing. And there's nothing of any value that you have that you have not received from him as a gracious gift. We need to see the kind of kingdom that Jesus is building, and we need to receive from him. We need to come as little children, as blind beggars, and receive and continue to receive all that he has for us. Jesus is not building a kingdom on the back of slave labor. He's building a kingdom on his own back, on his own strength. He bears the cost. Come to me. Learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right, here's the the third word. So see, receive, The third word is serve, serve others. 
You see, unless God rearranges your sinful heart, you will approach God and other people in exactly the wrong way. So many people approach God as if they've got to do something for him. And it, it proves to be very unsatisfying. And then they go out and relate to people, and they've got to get stuff from people. They've got to get approval. They've got to get affirmation. They've got to get applause. They've got to get support. They've got to get stuff from people. And that is exactly the opposite of the way that God created us. God did not create you to do stuff for him and get stuff from people. He created you to get stuff from him so that you can freely do stuff for other people. That's biblical Christianity. So you, you, you go into those relationships, those conversations, those ministry teams, those home groups, those congregational meetings, your family, your workplace. You go into those relationships and responsibilities not needing anything from anyone because Jesus is serving you. Jesus is supplying grace and mercy and strength and love and acceptance and forgiveness and it fills up your soul so much that then you can be an instrument in Jesus' hand as you are poured out in service to others. If you need people's applause or approval or support, it's very difficult to serve them well because you're always angling and manipulating for what you feel like you need from them. And Jesus says, no, 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 I want you to go by my appointment. I want you to go into those spheres of relationship and spheres of influence. And there in those contexts, I want you to be, I want you to be my servant. I want you to look around and find out who can you bless? Who can you serve? Who can you help? Who can you care for? And, and our mindset should be that we, we want to we want to lift others up and help others in terms of the full range of their needs. We, we, we want them to know Jesus. We want to share the gospel with them. We want to be practical and relational support to those around us. And so Jesus is building a community of servants. A community of servants who are overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus. A community of servants who stand in awe of His sacrifice. A community of servants who marvel at His mercy. And then we begin to do that in our relationships with one another. And that becomes a beautiful picture of the gospel for the world to see. By this, all will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 12.
like you to turn to Romans chapter 12, and I'd like you to stand up if you're able to. And I want to give you this charge from Romans chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 6. But I want you to think about it this way. In terms of Mark 10.45, Jesus is pouring grace and mercy into your life. And that's right where Paul picks up on in Romans 12.1 when he talks about in view of God's mercies as recipients, as beneficiaries of the overflowing life-changing mercies of God. Now, I want you to go and serve. So let's pick it up in verse 6. This is love made practical through concrete acts of service, okay? Verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, I pray for everyone here that we would live in the fullness of the grace of Jesus. And if anyone is here who is outside of that reality, we pray that you would touch their heart and give them no rest until they find rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would build us up as a community of humble servants who go forth in your name to do your will, to be a blessing to one another and to the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go in God's peace.